This morning we will endeavor to get through our fourth sermon on Romans 28 through 30. I would appreciate if you'd open your Bibles there so that we can all read this together. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God. I know some of you haven't been with us through the first three messages, so I just want to emphasize this. The promise you're about to hear right now is not for everybody. It's for those who love God. And many people will say they love God. But loving God It's all about prizing Him above every other thing. Selling out to have Him. Seeing in Him such value that you're willing to lay every other thing in life at the feet of His Lordship. It's having affection for Him. Intimacy with Him. It's desiring Him more than anything else. That's what love is all about. I mean, we're not confused about that when it comes to love between a man and a woman. That's exactly how we think. And yet, somehow people seem to want to redefine this thing when it has to do with love for Christ. Love for God. It's endearing. It's affectionate. It's sweet. It's desirable. And I'm talking about not loving the God that you created. I'm talking about loving the God as He's presented in Scripture. You know, lots of people will tell us they love God. But if you sit down with them and show them from the Bible who this God is, you know what they say in the end. That's not my God. And that's right. Because most people's image of God is not the biblical image of God. But if we love the God as He's presented to us in the very face of Jesus Christ, then this promise is for you. And this is not a small thing. And I hope it's growing on you that this is a big deal. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And now Paul decides to call them something else. He doesn't want us just to know what our action is towards God, which is love. He wants us to see what these same people are in view of what God does for us. For those who are called, and that's what God does for us. He calls us according to His purpose. But He's not finished with just saying you're called according to His purpose. God's purposes are much bigger. It involves more. And so He goes through this five-tiered reality of the purposes of God behind all of God's people. Four. Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, and there's our word for today. That's what we're dealing with. You want to know the title of my message today? Those whom God foreknew. That's it right there. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
Now, we sang this. It's not about me. Right? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's really critical that we understand what that means. It's not about me. You, you see, right here, all of what God does, His foreknowing, His predestinating, His calling, His justifying, His glorifying, it has an object in order that Christ, He, might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's got something to do with His worship. It's got something to do with His glory. But you know, when we say it's all about Him, it's not about me. What we want to be careful that we don't do in all this is kind of view this whole thing like, like, I love my wife, and so I want to do something for her. When I was in China, I wanted to bring her this big vase. Well, I packed the vase away, and I got back, and the vase was broken. But I had my wife, and that was what more, that meant more than anything. I didn't care about the vase. You see, what God's doing in this whole picture is not like that. It's not. Because the vases that God wants to give to His Son as expressions of love, the Scripture actually says He loves the vases with the very same love that He loves the Son. So it's a whole different deal, folks. When we say this isn't about us, well, we have to be very careful. We want to say ultimately it's about Christ and His name and His glory and Him being seen but you know what? Where He is, we are. Where He's seated, we're seated. The, the, I mean, it is about us in that sense. It is about us in the fact that God plugs us in and pours love on us. So we don't want to miss that. It's not, it's not like God grudgingly you know, has no affection for us. It's all for the Son. And He just kind of uses us to get glory. It's not like that. He predestines to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, the Son, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're not going to deal with that today. God willing, maybe next week. And those whom He predestined, He also called. So you see this. If He foreknew someone, He predestined that someone. If He predestined that someone, He called that someone. And those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now brethren, have you really considered what it means for us if we're truly Christian and love God to have the promise that all things work together for our good? Have you thought about the... I mean, really. Let's, just, let's be real personal here. As we've been going through this, have you really thought about the implications of this on your life? Do you realize what this means? I can be daring for the sake of the Gospel. I can take risks in the name of Jesus Christ. I can do things that even most professing Christians think to be insane. And I can know with a certainty that it will every single time work out for my good. Has that thought struck you? You can do something crazy like staying single all your life. And it will actually work out for your good. 
Or you can do something even crazier. You can get married and have kids and go off somewhere where they're likely to get malaria and die and it'll work out for your good. Or you can go places where trees fall out of the sky and snakes fall out of the sky and it'll work out for your good. This is true. I mean, this is the kind of thing that God means for us to see in all this. You can go to where the demons are thick, where the trials are many, and it will work for your good. You can, look, you can really do this. You can give up the playthings. You can give up the stuff. You know that pretty stuff that sits on your mantle and sits on the shelf and does nothing but cost a lot of money and collects dust. You can really do that. You can give it up and it will work out for your good. You could sell the painting on the wall. It'll work out for your good. Folks, you can sell your house. You can quit your job. Look, you can break ranks with everything that's called normal in this world. And it will work out for your good. You can throw yourself into situations where you're likely to be persecuted and you can rejoice and be exceedingly glad for all the good that will come to you. You know what you can do? You can open a room in your house and you can let strangers live there. Oh, you say it's scary. Yeah, but it'll work out for your good. I guarantee, folks, that's what this promise does for us. You can, you, you know what, folks? You can do this. You could actually give away all your money. All of it. And it would work out for your good. That's right. You know what? You can cash in the 401k. You can live life without a retirement. You can forego health insurance and house insurance and life insurance. And I'll guarantee you, I will guarantee you on the authority of the Word of God, in the end, it will all work out for your good. That's a reality. You can forego college education or you can go to college. It'll be good. You could start giving 50% of all your income to the support of the spread of the Gospel and still know it's going to be good tomorrow. And it's going to be good the next day. And the day after that. And you know what? I give no cautions, no disclaimers, and no warnings to this. You know why? The last thing we Americans need is more caution. What we need is a good dose of reckless abandonment for Christ. And the promise we find right here in Romans 8.28 gives us enormous incentive to do just that. Where are the men and the women and the young people who are so gripped and convinced and absolutely unwaveringly certain that nothing can come along in this life to sway them from God's purposes of total good for them. So convinced that they cut loose from what is normal and what is common and what is status quo and launch out into some new and extreme strategy for good, for loving people, for reaching people, for the spread of the Gospel, for the name of Christ, living for Christ. Caution for the most cautious people on the face of the earth. That's not what we need. You older Christians in this room, God forbid that as more and more young people come into this church 
you take your status quo ideas of security and prudence and caution and marriage and houses and education and retirement and insurance and normalcy and pour it into them. That is not what we need here. That is not what this church has been built on from the first day. That puts churches to death. That is not what we need. We need such rigorous faith. We'll step out on promises like this. The promise of all things working together for your good should really awaken something dangerous in you. Something extreme. Something worth doing in your life. Something that won't look pathetic and cheap and common on the day of judgment. Is that what you want? Here, Lord. Here's my life. In all its mediocrity and sort of average... We need to take this to heart. Paul's, look, we looked at the context here last week. A, a quick look at the context will show you right off. Paul's point here is not to make us think we can fall asleep and waste our life, but, oh, that's okay, because after all, all things work together for our good. If that's the way what this promise does to you, you have really missed the point of the text. Have you really considered verses 31? There's enemies out there. Verse 35. Verse 38. Look, Paul is not viewing this promise through the lens of mediocrity and comfort and laziness. He's not. He's viewing our good and our being more than conquerors and the truth that God is for us through the lens of hostility and Enemies and challenges and extreme situations and tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword and life and death and angels and rulers and powers. Look, this isn't about being more than conquerors with all your retirement insurance and security blankets in place. It's not. If you say it is, you're not reading this right. You're not believing this right. This is about God being with us in the midst of a life that turns the world upside down. And if all things work together for my good, then I am free to let loose with a life like that. Yes, yes, there may be blood and sweat and tears. That's kind of what verses 35... 38, 39. They kind of do kind of point to that. But what Paul's saying is good hangs on every drop. Every drop. Don't compromise, folks. Listen, our time is short. That's the last thing you want to do is compromise. Promises of this magnitude aren't for Sunday mornings and theology books. They're for every day. They're for all of life. Most of us in this room fear poverty way too much to be really dangerous. Brothers, sisters, I hope you don't miss this. Romans 8.28 all the way through the end of the chapter is full of all the stuff of an aggressive life and intense life. And if we're guaranteed that we will be more than conquerors, doesn't that sound like we ought to be putting ourselves in the very places where there are things to conquer? 
Those verses don't sound like a call to luxury and ease. They sound like a call to battle. A call to faith. Remember, we talked about that today. Shield of faith. This is a call to take up that shield and run. We fear taking risks if there's a good deal of possibility that I might end up suffering loss. Right? If I'm going to suffer loss because of the risk I take, I'm likely not to take the risk. Men are slow to invest their money in something of super high risk, even if there's some potential of an enormous return. So what about us Christians? We can risk it all. And what's the worst thing that can happen? It all works out for your good? There's no risk. You see, Paul doesn't come along and give us promises so that we can pack them away after Sunday morning's over and go on our life and live like they have no effect. This is all about life. This is all about where you live and what you do and how you follow Christ and what you do with the short time you have. Your time is short. Every one of us need to come to grips with how we're going to use a little bit of time that we have. Brethren, the promises of God must be believed and acted upon and lived out. If you truly believe the promise of God is true and you believe the God who made the promise is great, then venture on God. Set yourself to do impossible things. As the old Sarampur missionary once said, expect great things from God and... Attempt great things for God. And if you find this kind of fiery spirit among some of the brethren here, warm yourself by it. Don't try to quench it. We already have too many dead Calvinists in the world as it is. It's a shame. You know what? When somebody comes along with a little bit of abnormal zeal and faith, you know who the people are who rise up, number one, to stamp it out? Typically other Christians. It's sad. But it's typically true. Oh, folks, may God give us the eyes to see how much freedom comes along with a promise like this. Look, if I'm standing on a rickety old table, I probably don't want to jump on it. I probably want to be very careful how I move. But if I'm standing on some great big block of solid marble, I can jump as high as I want. I can do somersaults, I can do flips, I can get crazy on it. You're not standing on some promise of the old rickety table, folks. You're standing on the marbled shoulders of the God of glory and the promise that He gives. Folks, your hope, your hope is built on something that's really solid and unchangeable here. You know what? It's built on a God who not only has some you know, distant thoughts about your good, He demands your good in every single situation. The sky's the limit! You are free to be a fool for Christ. Paul seems pretty excited. You know, if you read it with a dead heart and a dead head and no... no passion, 
you're almost likely to think Paul's just saying all these things in this dreaded, monotone, lifeless way. But you know what? If you read these things and some of the fire begins to kick off the pages, you begin to realize when Paul wrote these things, the man was excited. The man had something to say. He's getting stirred up. First thing he does after he gives this promise and identifies who these people are, and he moves off into verse 29. Folks, he wants to peel back this veil that uncovers the purposes of God, and he shouts, Look! Look all the way back into eternity past. Look way back there. You know what you find? You got God way back there foreknowing and predestinating your good. God's intentions for good to us did not spring up just last night. That's the thing He wants us to see. There are eternal foundations here. Long ago, before the mountains stood high in their glory, before the sun ever shed its first ray, God foreknew a people. That's how verse 29 starts out. Those whom He foreknew. And the question we really need to settle right now is this. Well, Paul, okay, you just got done giving a promise about everything working out for my good. And then you go on into verse 29. You start it with the word for, which is a conjunction, right? He's clearly building on what he just said. So in his mind, it's clear he's thinking there's a connection between God working everything for my good and the fact that God foreknew me. What's that connection? And that's what I, that's what I think we should answer today. What is that connection? Why even bring it up? I mean, it seems like verse 29, you start it with the word for, or it could be because. Obviously, what he's doing is he's building on that. He's giving us more foundation for it. He's wanting to enlarge, wanting to fill in some of the gaps. And so he says, okay, first thing I want you to do, look into eternity past. Because there's something back there that really resounds with good. So that's what he has. He, he says, those whom God foreknew. You know what? It's hard to tie the two together. Those whom God foreknew and God doing us good if we don't know what foreknew means. Right? Guys, think we ought to put a little bit of definition on that? Okay. Well, here we go. What does it mean? If you're a Christian in this room, God foreknew you. Those whom God foreknew, He predestinated to conform to the image of Christ, he called them, He justifies them, and He glorifies them. It's an unbroken chain, folks. If you're in there, then all five steps are true. Because that's how Paul worded it. Those whom He did this to, He does this to. And those whom He does this to, He does this to. You see that? Five links. Foreknew, predestinated, called, justified, glorified. And those who He did that to, He did that to, that to, that to, that You see that, right? Nobody gets in part way. You know, you don't jump the fence like in Pilgrim's Progress and come in part way through the deal. It doesn't happen. You've got to go back to the gate. The gate's all the way back there, so to speak. Now, what does it mean? For new. Okay, this is the point of this sermon where you guys all have to think with me. Now, if you shut down, I know it's hot. It's hot. I feel it right here. That's okay, right, Matt? We need to be, where's Matt? We need to be extreme, right? Nothing like living dangerous with uh, no air conditioning. 
or very little. Here's, here's where you've got to really tune in because I'm going to try to explain some things to you and if you like listen to the baby crying over there and your thoughts divert, you're likely to miss some of this. So hopefully this won't put you to sleep. I, I rewrote it about five or ten times hoping not to put people to sleep and make it clear. But here's the thing. For new, those whom, if you're a Christian here, God foreknew you, right? Those, those in verse 29 are called those whom God foreknew. Okay, for no, some have taken this term to mean that God simply foresees who will believe on him. Because he sees they believe on him, he predestines to save them. In other words, God has always known whether you would believe or not. And based on that, he then chooses you to be saved. Or not be saved. Precisely because He sees what you will do. Now, maybe some of you believe this. In your estimation, the phrase, those whom God foreknew, simply means that God knew a certain fact about people long before they ever lived. And the fact that He knew about is whether they would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ or not. And if He foresees that they will come to faith, then He predestines them to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, if there's no one in here that believes that, I'd be very surprised. Because lots of people in this world believe that. Well, here's the thing. Is that what it means? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Now, listen. Of course, the assumption in all of this is that God does not cause our faith. He only foresees the faith which we cause. The assumption is that no man is picked by God for salvation, unless God foresees faith in that man. And if He foresees faith, that's what it means to be foreknown by God. Lots of people think this is true. But the important question to ask right now, do our Bibles teach this is true? So what I want to do right now is give you six thoughts to ponder regarding what the Bible says about being foreknown by God. Are you all ready for this? See, I know some of you have never really dealt with this before. You don't really know what this means. It's important. You know, like I said before, if you read through your Bibles, you read through the book of Romans, and you don't know the terminology, then you're kind of left in the dark to all the glory of what Paul's really saying. So, here we go. Six. I'm going to fire through these. I know that was a long introduction, but these aren't all that long. Here's the first thing. <clears throat> if to foreknow is only God looking around to see who will believe in Him, the automatic assumption behind all of this is that the faith God is looking for is ultimately our work. Not His work. That's the whole mindset behind this. It is only when you believe that faith is ultimately caused by man that you will ever tend to think God needs to look around at men in order to find out where that faith is. You see what I'm saying? God looking for faith only makes sense if faith has its origin somewhere outside of God, which typically is in us. But this whole way of thinking, this whole theory about what it is for God to foreknow, it all falls to pieces if, in fact, my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
turns out to be primarily God's work and not mine. If God is the one who determines who will believe on Christ, then it's pointless to talk about God looking to see who will believe. If He's the one determining who will believe, He determines it. That settles it. Why would He need to look at me from eternity past to figure out if I'm going to believe? He already determined that I would believe. You guys see where I'm coming from? You see, the only way it works out to say that God looks around to see who has faith is if He has nothing to do with who possesses that faith. But if God is the one who causes men to believe, He doesn't need to look any further than Himself and His own purposes. All He's got to do is consider what people He's chosen to give saving faith to. So the question we really need to ask is this. Do men ultimately produce saving faith or does God produce it? The Bible's not silent on this. Philippians 1.29 It has been granted to you. Oh, very interesting words. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should... Now, there's a not only because he's talking about suffering as well, but that you should believe. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe. Now, if you've believed on the name of Christ, mark it down. God granted that to you, right? He bestowed it on you. He generously, graciously gave it to you. And now, come on. You all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. Or as our ESV says, this is not of your own doing. It is what? The gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. Now, here, here you have this picture in Matthew 16, verse 15. Jesus just asked His disciples, Disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're one of the prophets, and some say this, and some say that. Some say you're Elijah. And He looks them in the eye and He says, Who do you say I am? Of course, Peter, he's bold, he's brash, he's the first one with his mouth open. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't it interesting how Christ answers? You know what He says? Peter, that's good, that's good that that happened. That's good you were able to pull that off. That's good that sprang up in you. My father saw that was going to happen all the way back in eternity past. That's not what He says. He says, Peter, you know what? That was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. My Father in Heaven revealed that to you. Let me tell you this, folks. Saving faith is clearly a gift of God. He gives it. He grants it. He reveals it. Then what in the world kind of nonsense is it to think that God looks down through all of time to see who will believe? He doesn't need to look at me through the corridors of time to figure out anything. To see who will believe. He doesn't need to do that. He already knows what He is going to do. He already knows whom He will empower to believe. Now wait. Yes, I must believe. I must do it. 
I must believe upon the all-glorious Christ. But my doing it is entirely an enablement and a gift of God. So it is entirely wrong to envision foreknow as meaning that God foreknows what I will do. Because what I do is entirely dependent on what He has purposed to do. So foreknow is not about what God sees that I will do. To foreknow has everything to do with what God knows He will do. That's the first thing. That's the long one. Second one. Second thought for you. Romans 8.29 says that the only ones God foreknew are the ones whom He also predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know what that tells us? God is specifically saying to us through the Apostle right there that God does not foreknow all men. He only foreknows the ones who He predestines to be conformed to the image of Christ. So only Christians are foreknown and no one else. See, if you say that foreknow is nothing more than God's foreknowledge about what a person will do, then God foreknows all men. Right? Because He knows what all men are going to do. He has a knowledge ahead of time of every person. And yet what Paul is talking about has a very unique meaning specifically and uniquely for Christians. It is only those who God predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ who God foreknew. So to foreknow clearly means more, much more, than God just having a general knowledge beforehand about what people would or wouldn't do. Whatever is involved in foreknowing, it's special. It's only true of God's children. That's the second thing. The third thing is this. The Bible never speaks of God predestinating anyone because He foresaw their fate. And that's a pretty basic thing. Right? Lots of people believe this is what happens. And yet it's simply amazing that they believe this without a single indication in God's Word that it's true. The Bible speaks in quite different tones. Ephesians 1.5 God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Not because He saw that we would believe. According to the purpose of His will. Ephesians 1.11 In Christ we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, not according to what He sees in us, but according to the counsel of His will. I mean, folks, that really couldn't be plainer. If you wanted to come up with words to express a God who does everything from beginning to end. Well, what kind of words could you use? Ah, he does everything according to His will. Yeah, that's, that's good. He does everything according to His purpose. Yep, that would be pretty accurate way. Everything according to the counsel of His will. Yep, that would be pretty thorough. That would be a good way to say it. And how is it that, you know, the problem is, not so much what the Bible says, it's what men just don't want to believe. It's men with an absolute determination to not have God in control of everything. 
Because a God who is in control of everything, like we already talked about, is not the God of their imagination. They don't want a God like that. Oh, they love a God, but not one who's in total control. Not one who's sovereignly moving this whole universe. You see, that makes men feel uncomfortable. You know what the truth of the Bible is? God chooses who He will save because He gives faith. And He chooses who He gives it to. He chooses when He will save them. It's God who justifies. It's God who calls. And He determines when that's going to happen. And He determines how and through what circumstances they're going to be saved. He determines who it is that's going to come to you. He determines the message that it is that's going to be preached to you. He determines all these things. It's in His hands. You know what? He predetermined all of it before the world began. And He did it. Never because of our will, our faith, or our recommendation. You know one thing is very interesting? He never took counsel from any of us, did He? Has He ever asked you? All things are done according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's what the Bible teaches. Fourth, here's another thing to think about. Let's, and I know this kind of gets a bit abstract, but you guys just think about this. Let's think and suppose for a moment, imagine that God foreknowing does only mean that God looks down through the corridors of time to see who would believe in Him and those are the ones He predestinates. Let's suppose that's true. It's not true, but let's just for a second suppose that it is. Men still wouldn't have the freedom they so desperately want. Let me explain this to you. If God looks out into the future and sees that 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 one right over there will believe in Him and sees that that one over there won't believe in Him, it's already sealed. Because God God sees that it's going to happen. You see, the destiny of the guy over there is sealed. Because God already saw it. And what God sees always comes to pass. Right? Because He's able to see. And His vision isn't impaired. Because after all, God is omniscient. God can see all things. That's what God does. After all, He's God, right? And you see you see what I'm saying? In the course of time, when that man over there, who God foresaw down through the corridors of time, is actually born into the world, He has no greater freedom because God already saw that He wouldn't believe. It's already sealed. You see what I'm saying? People think that by saying this, somehow they're able to to gain something by this, but they don't gain a thing. It doesn't leave men any freer. It only makes God out to be weak. So that's the fourth thing. How about the fifth thing? Romans 8.29 specifically speaks of those whom God foreknew. Now to be certain, you all see that, right? You all see that. Those whom He foreknew. God foreknows people. Not just facts about people. He foreknows human beings. 
Paul doesn't say that God foreknew what these people would do. He says God foreknew the people themselves. This isn't about foreknowing a fact, like whether someone will believe or not. In eternity past, God looked into the future and saw a people who yet unborn, He already personally knew. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. And we're done, folks. That brings, well, we're not all the way done, but we're to the last point. Six. Spent a lot of time showing you what foreknow does not mean when it's used in Romans 8.29. But here's a sixth point. Here I want to sum up what it does mean. When Paul speaks about these people, those whom God foreknew, he is saying that God knew a people before the people ever came into being. But this is the thing I want you to think about. When that little four-letter word shows up in our Bible, the word know, K-N-O-W, when the Bible speaks about God knowing someone, or even in a human relationship, somebody knowing somebody, it expresses God's relationship to human beings a relationship that always has a very special meaning. What I want to do is give you an example or two before we wrap up. 1 Corinthians 8.3 If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Well, that's interesting. Doesn't God know all people? Is God's knowledge limited? You know what? You know what that shows us right there? Clearly, when Paul's speaking to the Corinthians, the word no must mean more, a lot more than just knowing some facts, right? I mean, wait, what is that? Why say it like this? What about those who don't love God? What about them? Doesn't God know them too? But you see, to know, if to know only means a few certain facts about them, then of course God knows every man in that fashion. But the knowing here is deeper and it's special. Let's consider another one. Galatians 4.9 Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And he's speaking to believers here. You have come to be known by God. Consider this. Amos 3. O people of Israel, Against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God obviously knew about all families. But Israel was uniquely chosen. Uniquely loved. Uniquely cherished. Uniquely watched over uniquely owned by God as His favorite among all the families of the earth. Is that not what that means? If He looks at one family among all of them and He says, I have known you of all the families of the earth. I have known you. Oh, what is that saying? 
when he looks out at the Christian and he says, from all eternity, I have known you with a foreknowing above all the people of this earth. Oh, folks, we're talking more and more and more than just God knowing some little thing about whether I would believe or not. He's saying, I have known you in a way that I have purposed to put my love upon you from all eternity. You see where the connection's coming together right now with everything working together for our good? Paul's saying, just let your glance go back as far, I mean, as far eternity as something. Let your eyes go back as far as you can imagine. And God is back there with purposes of love and purposes of good and purposes that just are fantastic and ought to roll you over. It's not like you just jumped on some bandwagon where God all of a sudden just caught notice and said, Oh, well, maybe I'll think to start doing this guy good. These are purposes that range all the way back in before time began. God had purposes of good. Listen, when, when Judgment Day comes and Jesus Christ has all these people come before Him and He says, depart from Me. I never knew you. You know what He's saying there? Jesus is saying to sinners in the Day of Judgment, I never knew you. It obviously can't mean that He didn't know all the facts about them. He means, you've never belonged to Me. You've never been one of My people. You've never been in this peculiar relationship to Me. I have never had a special interest in you. That is the only conceivable meaning here. When Paul speaks of a people who are foreknown, he's speaking of a people that God has set His heart upon. Before the dawn of time, this comes at us several ways, but you just think about Genesis 4.1. Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Adam knew his wife and she conceived a son? You see, that doesn't ring right in our ears. The use of the word. We don't use the word like that. That's the whole point. When we come to our Bibles and we begin to be confronted with words, there are oftentimes meanings that are not common to our typical usage today. That's why I felt it was so important to spend an entire message on this. For this reason, folks. You know, it, it really begins... You know, maybe it's just been all the time that I've poured over these verses. But the more I think about this, the more it makes me think I can just cut loose. I mean, over and above and beyond anything that I've imagined before, I can cut loose. I know we need to have wisdom and we need to be we need to be people of this book. We need to be people of prayer. We just don't run and do any old everything under the sun unless we have some good idea God wants us to do it. But I have a feeling God wants us to do and is willing that we should do a whole much more than we are doing. And I have a basis of eternal good. When it, it really begins to start to overwhelm you when you begin to think, God had me squarely in His sights, 
in all eternity. And I can't get out of these eternal purposes of good. When God purposes something, it's not like, well, He tries this and fails and then He goes to plan B and He tries this and, and it, well, he's, he's trying to get this right. He's purposed it from beginning to end all the way back there. The whole, the whole thing about all this is what holds you back? I'm afraid. You're afraid of what? People are only afraid that they'll be harmed. Do you see this? You can't be. Do you see what this promise says? God has purposed in eternity past that you're invincible when it comes to anything bad. You're invincible. So what if you go to Papua and the tree falls? If it misses you by a few meters and the Spirit blew it over? He that's with you is greater and He moved it to the side. And if it comes down and bashes your brains out, you're in glory and the joy is unspeakable. And He that's with you is still greater. Was always greater. And He that's greater purposed your good. Whether it blasts your brains out or whether it misses you. It's all good. You see, we only fear when we really think, I'm going to lose. I'm going to be a loser for this. I'm going to be set back. It's not going to be for my good. But when faith really says, man, I can do really crazy things for Christ. And it's going to be good. Because this is etched in the very heart of God from before time began. Man, that is liberal.